It is estimated that approximately 30% of epilepsy patients are drug-resistant, meaning their seizures do not successfully respond to anti-seizure medications. What other treatment options are available to patients who aren't responding to medication? This is ReachMD, and I'm Dr. David Wiseman. Joining me to talk about treatment options for epilepsy is Dr. Laura McCuse, the co-director of Mount Sinai Epilepsy Center. Dr. McCuse, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. To start, can you define what epilepsy is and talk about various types of seizures that you see in your practice? Sure. So there's so many different definitions for epilepsy, but a very basic definition is that you've had at least two unprovoked seizures. And by unprovoked, it means that there's not a kind of extreme metabolic or structural reason for the seizure. So if you have a seizure because you've been drinking vodka for a month and then can't drink vodka because you have pancreatitis, that doesn't go towards your two seizures, towards the diagnosis of epilepsy. So that is the most basic all-around definition is two unprovoked seizures. Those people have other problems, I'm sure. Yes. A seizure is abnormal electrical activity of the brain, and there are so many different kinds of seizures. And one of the things I see so often in my practice is somebody has a big generalized tonic-clonic seizure, and they go to the emergency room. And then in my discussion with them, it really turns out that they've been having smaller seizures that they didn't recognize as seizures for sometimes years, sometimes since childhood. So a very small experience of deja vu can actually be a seizure in people with the right, you know, temp- mesial temporal lobe epilepsy. And often adolescents with juvenile myoclonic epilepsy have been flinging objects all their life in the morning, and they just really think that they're clumsy. They don't really recognize these things as seizures. So it really depends on what part of the brain is stimulated by the seizure. So a seizure can cause all kinds of different signs and symptoms in the patient. And sometimes they're subclinical, and people don't even know that they're having them, and we just recognize them if we see them on the EEG. That's fascinating. When I was a resident, those were called auras. Yes. So is that now sort of superseded? The terminology is now, are those all seizures or is aura still a thing? So an aura is a focal aware seizure. That means that, you know, you're experiencing whatever that area of the brain, whatever that function is when it gets stimulated. And one of the things you will notice in epilepsy nomenclature, maybe you've noticed it already, is that we change the nomenclature every few years so we can always tell other doctors that they're saying it wrong. So not only is it not aura, it's not simple partial anymore, it's focal aware. Very, very hard to keep up with. Okay, and that'll last for like two more years and then I can forget about it? Yes, exactly. You know, it often loops back. So you just stick with aura and you just hope for the best and it probably will go back to aura in a few years. Yeah. But yes, most auras are focal aware seizures. Sometimes people just sort of feel kind of off and unwell and it's actually not a seizure and it kind of goes on for hours before a seizure. That type of aura is not usually a seizure. Right. I think I'm having deja vu right now because it seems like a lot of fields are like this. Yes. So broader strokes, basic various types of seizures. What are we talking about in this day and age with the current nomenclature? So the seizure types, there's the big fork in the road where we decide whether the seizure is coming from everywhere in the brain at once or a generalized onset or if it's coming from a part of the brain, and that's now called a focal onset. And if it's a generalized onset, the three most common types of generalized seizures are absence seizures, and those are the seizures where usually start in childhood and kids blank out for a few seconds. Myoclonic seizures where somebody will have a rapid body jerk, which is very much like what we all get while we're falling asleep, which is normal myoclonus and not a seizure, but it looks and feels really similar to that. And then the generalized tonic-clonic seizures. Those are the most common types of generalized onset seizures. 
And then the other category is focal onset. And what somebody experiences with a focal onset seizure really depends on where it is. So if it's in the occipital lobe, somebody may see a blob. But if it's in, you know, an area that's more of an association cortex and not a primary sensory cortex, the experience might be much more formed. Like somebody might really think about playing pool with their father who's passed on, and that could be the beginning of their seizure. And these obviously have different treatments. I mean, the field has absolutely exploded. Absolutely. I don't recognize at least half the medications since I graduated residency, and it hasn't been that long. How do you keep up with the new medications? You probably have been doing the trials. Yeah, I mean, that's my job, and I also don't tend to see the easy patients, so we need to really stay on top of all of the new medicines because we want to be able to offer people everything, and we want people to not give up. But I wanted to read you this one thing that I just found today. I'm kind of like a history buff, so I was reading through this book on miracles, and it talks about treatments in antiquity for epilepsy. And this one treatment, this is from like 155 AD, it says, for epilepsy, it is beneficial to eat a bear's testes or to take those of a wild boar in mare's milk or water. Likewise, wild boar's urine and oxymel with increased efficacy if it is dried in his bladder. So luckily, we've come a long way from there. That's going to make a comeback. <laughs> no, that's not going to make a comeback. But you can maybe keep saying aura, but please, no testes. Okay, okay. That's okay. not going to make a comeback. That literature is not supporting, right? <laughs> but, you know, when have we done a randomized double-blinded placebo-controlled trial with this? Never. You're totally right. <laughs> so, you know, there's all of these new medicines, and they have new mechanisms of action that have never been tested before, which we were hoping would really lead to decreasing that 30% number that you were talking about in the beginning. But the truth is, is that where we're really using the new medicines is helping people find something that agrees with them. But it actually isn't decreasing the number of refractory patients, which is in and of itself surprising interesting and disappointing. We have a drug called parampanol, which is a great new medicine, works on the AMPA receptor, and we've never had anything like it, but it's not chipping away at the number of refractory patients. So that said, you know, sometimes you'll try a new medicine on somebody and it'll be magic and you'll get them under control. So you kind of really do need to have the patience to keep trying, but there's no magic. It's really weird. I mean, these people are just hopeless. I mean, is it we're failing them? I'm so glad you said that. If I wanted to say anything to anybody listening to this podcast, we really want to continue to try, and there's so many other interventions that are not medicine. And I think a lot of doctors, primary care doctors and neurologists, we kind of get used to people having whatever seizures they have, like two or three seizures a month, or everybody gets used to this kind of baseline of bad. And I actually want people to have a higher expectations because First of all, sometimes the new medicines really do work where other medicines didn't. And then second of all, there are un really just so many surgical interventions, and the surgical interventions work for the seizures that start focally. And, you know, even if they spread and become a bilateral tonoclonic seizure, it has to be a focal onset for a surgical intervention. But if there is somebody that is refractory to medication, they should really be evaluated for a surgical intervention because it's so different than it used to be and there's so much that we can do. Yeah, the no better than bad brain mantra. Yeah. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD and I'm Dr. David Wiseman. My guest today is Dr. Laura McCoos, the co-director of the Mount Sinai Epilepsy Center. So surgery for the focal folks and other devices coming up? Yes. So for surgery, if you can find the area that's having the seizure, and if it is not going to hurt the person to remove it, that is the person's best chance of cure. 
So one way we find it is by doing EEG on the scalp with a normal electrode stuck to someone's head. But now we also, instead of putting like grids and strips on the surface of the brain by making a hole in the skull, we do a lot of SEG, which does make a hole in the skull, but these holes are tiny. And then the electrodes can go into these very, very deep areas. And it's depth electrodes, just like we've been doing for years. But it's different in that they're placed by a robot and they can be placed so precisely to exactly where you're interested in. And it's really great for like nodular heterotopias or areas of the brain that we just had so much trouble reaching before. And then it also gives us this fantastic information and patients love it because it's much less painful and uncomfortable for them. We admit them, we put the electrodes in, we let them have their seizures, we see where they're coming from, and then we take out the electrodes and they kind of walk out with a Band-Aid. You would never really know, you know, they don't have massive sutures, they're not missing half of their hair. It just feels really comfortable for them. And then once we find out where the seizures are coming from, if we can resect, we would resect. And sometimes we do laser ablation, laser interstitial thermal therapy, um, which is done by putting in an electrode and then heating it in an MRI, and you can see exactly where you are. And that works extremely well. For temporal lobe epilepsy, it's less likely to cause any kind of cognitive problems, but it's slightly less effective than a temporal lobectomy. But people really like the laser ablation because, again, they walk out with a Band-Aid. Wow, that is a sea change. Unbelievable. It's so great to be in the MRI suite, and you can see it being done. And for mesial temporal lobe epilepsy, the electrode is put in occipitally through the back of the head and then goes to the long axis of the hippocampus to the amygdala. And you start in the amygdala, you heat the electrode, and then you pull back to the head of the hippocampus, heat it there, pull back, and then do the body of the hippocampus. It's exciting, and it's very nice and convenient for patients. If they do have seizures after that, then you can either do another laser ablation or you can do a resection, but it doesn't take away possibilities for the future, so it's a decent place to start. So the robot is for placing those SEGs, and then the laser ablation itself and moving it is really done by the neurosurgeons in the MRI suite with epilepsy doctors right there by their side. I mean, I think that the relationship, at least at my institution at Mount Sinai, the relationship between the epilepsy doctors and the surgeons is really close. Like, I don't even think of us as from a different department where really it's a very fluid communication. And I think that it's kind of changing the way neurology works, and it feels more like it's neuroscience with neurosurgery and neurology working very close together. But there's one option that's super, super interesting, which is, like, let's say you have seizures from Broca's, and if I took out that area, then you couldn't speak. Now, that's not good, and that would just make your life worse, and that's not why I became a doctor. So before, I wouldn't be able to do really anything for you, and now there is the device, which is the responsive neurostimulator, and we put in an electrode that lives in your brain at all times, and senses a seizure starting, it delivers stimulation to stop the seizure. So it's this whole other avenue of treatment for people that either have epilepsy coming from an area that you can't resect or epilepsy from two areas. So if you have seizures from both hippocampi, again, that's not good to remove both hippocampi. You need at least one. But now you can do a bilateral RNS in both hippocampi, and it's not as likely to cure someone as resective surgery, but it can be a really powerful intervention and it can be really helpful. I was going to say that removing both hippocampi is good for neuroscience. It is good for neuroscience. But that's about it. Yeah, it's so bad. It's so bad. And may H.M. rest in peace from his long and tortured life. Yeah. 
I don't know if he was actually tortured. He probably just forgot that he was tortured. So every moment was a new awakening and he was totally fine. I think he was totally fine. I guess that's my projection. Yeah, I think subjectively, his subjective experience of the world was one of complete fineness and wellness. Yeah. Although, you know, obviously he was devastated. So it's very interesting, this responsive neurostimulator, because that's also an absolute change. I imagine this is like a pacemaker that actually detects some spikes and so that in and of itself is unbelievable. The great thing about it is we get to kind of program it. We program how it should detect it's based on the person's seizure. So the device gets better and better with every year, and we don't know if it's neuromodulation or if we're just getting better at programming it. But it's a massive game changer. Wow. What's it called? It's called the Responsive Neurostimulator, and the brand name is Neuropace. Neuropace. Yep. And it has all these other side effects that are so helpful so one of the things that's really amazing about it is that someone can have a seizure or they can have an experience and they can call me and they can say, Dr. Marcuse, I think I had a seizure. And I can say, let me log on. And then I log on and I look and I can say, yes, you had a seizure. So like I now have this window into someone's brain. And then one of the things that happens is like sometimes we think people have bilateral hippocampal seizures because they did when they had their intracranial study in the intensive care unit. But really in the real world, it's only their right temporal lobe that seizes. So if they have the RNS in for like two years and we're only seeing right-sided seizures, and then we can move on and do a laser ablation because we basically have EEG data lasting for, you know, years, ambulatory EEG data for years and years. And it's actually an incredibly fruitful area of research. We're just beginning this RNS project looking at mood and seizures and RNS and the frequency of the brainwaves because it's all of this data. That is unbelievable. Forgive me, I know nothing about this except for a grand rounds a long time ago when they're talking about a trial. And at that time, it was a grid that sat on the brain. And does it live in the chest like a pacemaker? Oh, yes. The electrodes are either a depth or it can be on the surface of the brain. And then the battery, and this is not at all intuitive. It's placed in the skull, hmm. so it's like flush with the skull. So it's very, very cyborg. And all the circuitry is also just flush right there and lives right in the skull. Yeah, so the electrodes come from inside the brain to that battery, and then people have to upload the data every day because it doesn't have that much storage capacity. And it doesn't record every second. It records any time the person thinks they're having a seizure, and it records when it thinks it's detecting a seizure. And then it records, it does some random sampling also. But it can't be recording 24-7. You know, you would need a bigger hard drive for that. Fascinating. Tell me more about the 30% of people who are just refractory. We're chipping away at them. Some of them will respond to new medications. What do we do about these people? Yeah, I think the main thing is that we want to keep trying. So a quote that always sticks with me was Malcolm X has this quote where he says that he's going to bring humans to justice by any means necessary. And people took that to mean that we should just be violent. And I actually saw his wife say that he didn't mean that. He meant approach it culturally, approach it politically, approach it artistically. And that's actually how I feel about epilepsy. So you refer them for a surgical consult and surgical intervention and pre-surgical workup. Think about the ketogenic diet. The ketogenic diet, it freaking works. Do we understand why? No, but it really does. And it's really worth trying our patients on it. We finally got a nutritionist here at Mount Sinai and we're really supporting the patients to do the program because it's not easy. And as an epilepsy doctor or any of us as neurologists, we don't know enough to really help people through the ketogenic diet or even the modified Atkins. 
cannabidiol. I just got my cannabidiol license in New York State, and the data for this is so shabby right now, but it might be helpful. Incredible self-care can sometimes be helpful. A lot of people do better when they're sleeping well and they're less stressed and they're doing more yoga and they're doing mindfulness techniques. There are some other devices that I haven't been using that might come into play at some point, like trigeminal nerve stimulation and other things that might be around the corner for these patients. But I think that it takes like a relentless energy and optimism coupled with a lot of patience. We don't want to just kind of let people ride on if their life isn't good. So anything on the horizon that we should keep an eye out? There's a bunch of things on the horizon that I think that will be really interesting. One of the things that I thought was very fascinating was implanted interneurons. Interneurons are inhibitory, and there are some animal models where implanted interneurons are helping with um, animal models of epilepsy, and that I think could be very interesting in the future. Just change subjects a little bit. I've been really interested in these pseudo-seizures. I see when they come in, and I know that's not the preferred term, but I'm banking it's just going to come back and then I'll be okay. But these people, and they're fascinating to talk about theoretically and sort of in the abstract, and they're horrible to deal with on the practicality because of loss of insight and a lot of difficulty and resistance to the overall diagnosis. But what's your take on what is happening with them? They're obviously drug-resistant. What do we do? Yeah, so there's two main risk factors. So the International League Against Epilepsy called them psychogenic non-epileptic seizures now. I can't stand that the word seizure is in there because I think these are not seizures and that's so confusing. Totally. They do not respond to medication. There's two main risk factors that I see in my practice. One is that they have epilepsy and they've developed a new event that's actually a psychogenic event. The second risk factor is early childhood trauma. I think it is an area that we really don't understand. I very much believe in honesty with the person that I'm working with, like really sitting down, telling them that it's very good news that they're not having seizures, that it's not epilepsy, and that they have a functional disorder. And I find that the worst thing that we can do to people is to tell them that they have nothing because these events are so something to them. Right. And then I think that they need a neurologist to stick with them because the events look neurological. And if we don't stick with them, then they come back to you on like three different anti-epileptic medications the next time you see them in the emergency room because the events can be very convincing or they, they can, and you really need an EEG to help you. And you really also need to see the event because some events, the EEG doesn't show a seizure, but when you look at it, you know it's a seizure because of the semiology. It's like a jerking of the hand or something that can be typically EEG negative. I think people do actually really respond well to the truth and to having concurrent therapy and for us to talk to the therapist. And I have not found that the therapist does not have to be a specialist in psychogenic events. They just need to talk to me so that I can help them understand a little bit that these are not seizures and it's not a neurological emergency. But I hope that a day comes when we understand it better. All of the functional disorders, they're so hard to understand. Right. We don't even have a framework to begin to describe what's happening to these people on a neural basis. No, and you know, there have been PET scan studies, but any experience that we have in this world might affect how our PET scan looks. We only have one brain. We don't have our psychiatric brain and then our neurologic brain. It's one brain. But I haven't found them to be that helpful. But I think there is something very fascinating about conversion disorders that I don't think that we have really understood yet. And I see them in all walks of life. I think I see them more in women than men for sure. But I see them in men that work in finance. And I see them in people that have absolutely no risk factors to get them. And it's definitely psychogenic. I don't have like a hint of a doubt that it might be a seizure. 
Well, with that, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Laura McCuse, for joining me today to talk about treatment for drug-resistant epilepsy. Dr. McCuse, it was great having you on the program. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Dr. David Wiseman. To access this episode and others in the series, please visit reachmd.com where you can be part of the knowledge. Thanks for listening.